The story is told about a hardcore atheist who called up his insurance company to file for a claim. A huge tree branch fell on top of his roof that caused an opening big enough for a person to go through. So the insurance representative told him this, Sir, if the branch came off a dead tree that's right beside your house, then you're not entitled to file for the claim due to negligence. However, he said, if it is an act of God, I would be more than happy to assist you. The atheist immediately blurted out, oh, absolutely, I believe it is an act of God. It's funny how people can sometimes lie about their core beliefs for the sake of convenience, right? Today's message is a very simple review of a core Christian belief. We began last week with our new sermon series called Follow Jesus, A Call to Belong, Believe, and Become. And last Sunday, Pastor Julio shared with us a passage in Luke chapter 5. He talked about a call to belong, where it was highlighted that when Jesus called his disciples, uh, there's this importance of being called to a community even before they believed. We will continue today's, uh, mess- with, con- with today's message on the same chapter, chapter 5, with an amazing story of friends who brought their friend to Jesus. It is a story that I would say aligns perfectly well with today's sermon title, Called to Believe. Amongst our foundational belief as Christians, one of the most frequently attacked by critics in recent times is the divinity or deity of Jesus Christ. The belief that Jesus is God. An attack on Jesus' divinity is an attack on the bedrock of Christianity. You see, at the core of our belief is the recognition that Christ died a substitutionary death to provide salvation for lost humanity. So if Jesus were only a man, he could not have died to save the world. But because of his divinity, his death has infinite value whereby he could die for the entire world. That's why... The belief in his divinity is of utmost importance for us Christians. I want to read to you a short list of what critics say who Jesus is. They said, Jesus is a nice man. Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is a dispenser of religious wisdom, a model of spiritual life, a great moral teacher, I'm sure you've heard that several times. Well, he is all that, of course. However, Scripture says that he is infinitely more than that. He is God. 
in his book, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, he pointedly asserted to his readers that people only have an either-or option on what to believe about who Jesus really is. And I'd like to read that to you. He wrote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. And it says, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man, who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Such strong words from a well-known Christian author. But what does scripture say? And so let's dive right in to Luke chapter 5, 17 to 26. And our passage for today has to do with a paralytic that uh, <clears throat> was brought by his friends to Jesus. I'm sure most of you have read this. It starts with verse 17. One day, it says there, Jesus was teaching and the Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. He had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And then Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Church, there's three notable things in this passage that undeniably support the deity of Christ or the divinity of Christ. But before I expound on each of them from our passage, allow me to preface those notable facts with, the, with a universal truth about us humans. Humans are finite. We have limits as to what we can do or think, or understand. 
And so beyond those limits, we use the word or term impossible. The Bible says in Luke 18, 27, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And so only God can do what we as humans think is impossible. Does that make sense? Right? And so the first one we can identify in our passage is only God can read minds. The term that we usually use for this is God is omniscient because he knows everything. Nothing is hidden from him. Can anyone here mind read? You want to tell me what I'm thinking right now? Well, that's impossible to tell, right? You know, sometimes we always say either to our friends or our spouses, hey, I know what you're thinking. But honestly, really, we really don't, right? You're just guessing or surmising. You cannot read minds. No human can. But let's go back to the story in our passage. Jesus was teaching. Uh, the, uh, Mark, in his book, uh, said this was in Capernaum. And at this point, Jesus was already on like a celebrity status because he has been healing infirmities left and right. Like they bring people who are sick to him and he's been healing them. And so a group of men tried to bring this paralytic to Jesus for healing, but because it was super crowded, they could not find their way into the house. So what did they do? They climbed up the roof, ripped the roof apart, enough for them to lower the paralytic in front of Jesus. Isn't that crazy? Can you imagine this happening to your house today? You know, I could imagine so many emotional reactions from people who were present there. The crowd inside and out must have been bewildered. The owner of the house must really be upset. I don't know. They don't have insurance during those days, I presume, right? So probably he charged those people later on to repair the roof. The sick people who were waiting inside must have felt cheated because they were there first, right? And they were waiting for their turn to be healed by Jesus. But Jesus, he was so cool about the whole thing. When he saw that, he saw their faith and he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Now, after Jesus said his sins were forgiven, the Pharisees were angered. And so we go back to the passage in verse 21. It says there, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? I'm sure you caught that, right? Verse 21 the Pharisees or the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves. That's what the scripture says. And then verse 22, it says, Jesus knew what they were thinking. Well, Jesus read their minds. What would you think? Or what do you think would the Pharisees feel if, you know, in finding out when Jesus uh, can read their minds? Scripture doesn't say anything about how they felt, but 
they must have been intimidated about Jesus' ability to read their minds. You think they were embarrassed because Jesus revealed what their thoughts were? Well, the Bible is quiet about that. They were, in fact, hostile towards Jesus. But church, isn't it a fearful thing to know that God knows all our thoughts and motives? We are laid bare before him. I use the word fearful because as humans, our thoughts contain sinful and evil intents or motives. It would be totally embarrassing for us if God reveals our sinful thoughts publicly. See, in our passage, Jesus read their minds and revealed what's inside their minds. Only God can read minds. And that is what we saw on that part of the passage. Second, only God can forgive sins. See, up until this point in the gospel, <clears throat> Jesus' cures have been directed towards physical healing. He healed people who were demonically possessed. There's blindness, muteness, uh, leprosy, and of course, paralysis. But there's a deeper illness of humanity whose symptoms are not really apparent, not always apparent, for which healing is also needed. We know what it is. We call it sin. No man is whole for as long as he is prey to guilt with its strain of fears, anxieties, and emotional disturbances brought about by sin. Every human being, in a sense, to use the metaphor, a paralytic because of the effects of sin in our lives. And only forgiveness can provide the necessary healing for this type of paralysis, which is essentially spiritual. At the heart of Jewish belief system is the belief that it's only God who has the authority to forgive sins. Now, of course, we can offend others when we commit sinful acts against them. That's why we also seek their forgiveness. But ultimately, we are answerable to God because of his commandments on whether we obeyed or not. King David uh, committed a grievous sin in plotting the murder of his general Uriah, who was married to Bathsheba during that time because he coveted Bathsheba, right? And when his sin was discovered, listen what he wrote in Psalm 51, uh, verse 4. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. See, in an objective sense, David had sinned against Uriah, Bathsheba, their families, his family, and also his kingdom. Yet all of that fades into the background as he considered the greatness of his sin before God. He rightly felt as if, Lord, it is you and only you have I sinned. The Jews also hold this eschatological belief that at the end of the age, God will be the perfect judge of each person and those he forgave will be saved 
to everlasting life, while damnation awaits people who will not be forgiven. So ultimately, we sin against God. That's why only God can forgive our sins. He is the great judge. Let's go back to our story, verses 20 to 21. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, Jesus saw this roof-ripping act by the friends of the paralytic, including the paralytic, as an act of faith. What was the first thing he said to the paralytic? He said, friend, your sins are forgiven. See, in the eyes of the religious leaders during that time, Jesus overstepped the boundaries between humanity and deity. And for the first time in Luke, the religious leaders began to express their hostility against him. The religious group correctly sees that it is only God who can forgive sins. However, they incorrectly assume that Jesus was guilty of blasphemy. They could not connect his words with who he really is. It is also important to note that in those days, the Jews thought that all sickness or infirmities was due to a person's sin or the sin of the parents or the generation previous to that. John chapter 9, 1 to 2 says this. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? See, the rabbis also thought during that time, other than attributing sin to the infirmity, that uh, there is a fundamental need for forgiveness to complete healing. They believe that for divine physical healing to take place, it has to be preceded by forgiveness. So therefore, when Jesus spoke the word of forgiveness, it is essentially no more than to speak the word of healing. They are simply two sides to the same coin. The spiritual healing took place through forgiveness and subsequently physical healing will take place. So when Jesus declared the paralytic sins are forgiven, what do you think did the paralytic feel? Do you think he felt relief right away that he was forgiven and released from guilt? I really don't think so. Which brings me to my third point. This third point complements the second one on forgiveness. Third point is that only God can do a miracle. God is a miracle worker. In Luke chapter 5, verse 17, he prefaces the entire passage here. He says, And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. And then if you continue with verses 23 to 26, it says there, Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take, up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. And so the story goes, everyone was amazed 
And we have seen remarkable things today. You know, to Jesus' question, which one is easier, there's not really an easy answer. So let me ask you, all of us here, as humans, which one is easier to say to a paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or get up, take up your mat, and walk? I want a show of hands. Your sins are forgiven. It's easier to say? Okay. Take up your mat and walk. All right. Well, I'd say it's the first one. Why? Because there's no way for us finite humans to objectively verify if indeed the person's sin was forgiven. We can't really tell with utmost certainty if the person or whether the person was forgiven or not. But for us to say, get up and walk, it will most likely lead to embarrassment or us being branded as a fool, right? Because we don't have that innate capability or power to make it happen. Unless, of course, through the Holy Spirit nowadays, Jesus communicates to you and tells you to tell the man, but it's still God who does it through you. But for Jesus, both were easy. The challenge to Jesus' question is this. You are scandalized by me for giving this man sins, which is not subject to public verification. What will you make of this other one, which is plain for all to see? Jesus performs then the miraculous healing so that they may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Notice, when Jesus did that, there was no invocation of the name of the deity, no magical incantations, no abracadabra hocus pocus, right? Purely a declaration coming from himself saying, I say to you, get up and walk. And then it actually happens. What was the paralytic's reaction? Immediately he stood up in front of them and took what he had been lying on, went home praising God. Praising God because what seemed impossible was made possible by Jesus. Complete healing, spiritual and physical. Only God can forgive sins and heal miraculously. Jesus did both. Luke's account clearly portrays that Jesus, only Jesus, did what God can do. Here's an invitation by Jesus in the Gospel of John about himself and his works. John 14, 11. It says there, Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. That's a claim to be God, right? Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. His miracles prove he is indeed God. What conclusion can we draw from this story? The uh, script, scriptural account makes a compelling case for the divinity of Christ. So if we conclude that Jesus is divine, what's the big deal for us as believers? I want us to use the word followers. What's the big deal about Jesus' divinity for his followers? 
first. The big deal, one of the big deals is that it has to do with his lordship in our lives. You know, I always say to uh, people who have received Christ, you know, it's so convenient or easy to receive Jesus as Savior. It's fire insurance, right? We call it fire insurance. But the challenge will always be his lordship in our lives. Are we fully surrendered to him in trust and obedience? It was late 2018 when we found out that my mom, they found out that my mom had liver cancer. Doctors told her she has a 30% chance of making it three years and beyond. And so they presented her a couple of options on what treatments uh, were available. Um, I discussed this with my daughter. I called her up. She used to work for MD Anderson Cancer Center. And this is what she told me. She said she has witnessed people, elderly people, who have gone through those treatments. And she said she saw how their quality of life would immediately dip to a level where they suffer a lot more physically because of the treatments. In her opinion, she said it's best that her grandma would just let go and pray for a miracle rather than experience the effects of the medication. Of course, I did not reveal this to my mom. I respected what her decision would be. And so she decided not to go with any treatments, but do two things. She changed her diet and asked for prayers from their church in the Philippines to us here. I struggled with this. Well, mom said she was ready. I was not. I struggled with it, really. But just like her, I surrendered to what God's will is. However, I never stopped praying for a miracle. Every six months from then on, the doctors would test the level of cancer cell, uh, cells in her liver, and the normal count would be seven and below. She started with 300. Six months later, <clears throat> uh, it went down to 150. And then six months later, 90. And then another six months later, 30. And then it went down to nine. It remained there for like a year. And then just recently, for the last year, twice already, it is at 6.2. God, in his mercy and grace, answered our prayer. I say our prayer because some of you here who uh, know this story have been praying for my mom as well. And so I thank you, those who have prayed for her. It's now 2023, and my mom is still up and about. Here's what I learned from surrendering to God's lordship in our lives. When we surrender to God's lordship in our lives, <clears throat> it will save us from the burden of uselessly worrying and being anxious of what is going to happen next. Whatever happens, if he is Lord of our life, we can rest assured that his will is perfect for us. Second, good friends bring their friends to Jesus. Somebody did a study some time back of the people in the New Testament that Jesus healed. 
of the 40 times this person studied Jesus' healings, 34 were either brought to Jesus by their friends or he was taken to them. Only six cases out of 40 did the sick find their way to Jesus without any assistance. The paralytic's friends brought him to Jesus. I'd like to brand them, to call them friends in high places. Why? Because they go up the roof just so they could bring their friend right in front of Jesus, right? They do unconventional things. And so friends in high places bring their friends to Jesus. I have the privilege of um, being part of uh, inviting the Courtney's. Uh, Kirill and Wendy Brana invited the Courtney's uh, through the Pearl ABF. I had the privilege of doing the Bible study with them. Eventually, they received Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, they set up years later their own grow group and invited the Waldbusers. The Waldbusers eventually received Christ and then uh, David, David Courtney baptized uh, Jacob Waldbuser. Now, the Waldbusers, I, I recall Pastor Julio announced this last night, oh, last Sunday, that the Waldbusers were going to do a great commission barbecue to invite non-believers so that they will have the opportunity to present Jesus to them. Three generations the Branas, the Courtney's, now the Waldbusers. Isn't it amazing what God can do or how God can work through us if we really want to become a friend or friends in high places? Amen? There's also another big deal, and now it's the non-believer's turn. What's the big deal about Jesus' divinity to the non-believer? There's good news and bad news, actually. Well, when we tell someone, every time I, we ask somebody, what do you want to hear, the good news or the bad news first? Um, in most cases, people would like the bad news first, right? Before they listen, because they want it to end better, right? So let me go through that traditional route. Here's the bad news. <clears throat> One day... Whoever's watching online and whoever is here who's still a non-believer, one day your life will end and you have to make or a crucial decision that has to do about your eternal destiny. If you think you can earn your way to eternal life or what we call heaven because of your good works, or if you think you have more than enough good works reserved that offset the bad works you did, my friend, you are standing on sinking sand. Jesus said, the incarnate God, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except, let me highlight that, except through me. The only way for non-believers to make it through or to make it is through the Jesus way. There's no other way. Well, here's the good news though. God loves you so much 
that he sent his one and only begotten son. He incarnated in the flesh, in the person of Jesus. And Jesus lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, resurrected on the third day. And if you believe that, what's going to happen? You will be saved. Here's more good news. You're still alive to make that decision. But the clock is ticking. So I encourage you, you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Receive Christ as your Lord and Savior as soon as you can. Well, here's another big deal for you. God is inviting you to believe his son Jesus Christ so that you will be forgiven, saved, and be made whole just like the paralytic. Church, I stand here before you today to testify how radical my life has changed after I received Christ into my life. Let me just put it this way. I've lived a lifestyle that wasn't pleasing to God. I know my wife is here right now. If she had been a Christian way back then, then she wouldn't have said yes to me. I'm going to provide, oh, I'm not going to provide details right now, but perhaps here's a more subtle way of putting it. 90 to 95% of people who know me in the, in the past, my high school and college buddies, struggle with the reality that I became a pastor. Does that provide some perspective, right? So I won't go to any more details other than that. I will say this though. My life never had any direction, purpose, and meaning until I received Christ. That is the big deal. May he alone be glorified. In closing, I'd say life is never easy. As believers, we want to live victorious lives so that we have a good testimony. And I believe that having an honest and good grasp to your answer on that Pharisaic question, who is this, is essentially, you know, is essential rather to victorious living. Who is Jesus to you? Is he your savior who forgave all your sins? Then rejoice because your eternal destiny is secure. Do you believe he is divine and that he can do what you think is impossible in your life? Then have faith. Believe in him. All things are possible in him in accordance to his perfect will, of course. He can work a miracle in your life if he chooses to. Is he Lord of your life? then trust and follow him in faithful obedience. Here is my full confidence, and it's biblical. One day, a time will come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, and through him you revealed yourself to us. And so today we just continue to believe in that, Father, in his lordship, 
in what He can do for us. And that, Lord, thank you for the forgiveness of our sins because He has done that great sacrifice for us. We continue to commit our lives to you, O oh God, and just, Lord, entrust it to you. Thank you. We want to honor you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>